Welcome to the Home Birth After Cesarean podcast. Due to the rate of unnecessary C-sections, the lack of support, and limited options for VBAC moms in the hospital, more and more women are choosing to have their VBAC babies at home. This podcast was created for women to share and listen to stories of home birth after cesarean. I'm your host, Rachel Garrett. Today we're chatting with Brittany, and Brittany is going to share her four birth stories with us. So Brittany, if you just want to give us a little bit of an introduction, that would be awesome. Sure. My name is Brittany, and um, currently I live in Virginia, although I've had um, all my babies in Georgia and South Carolina, um, originally from Georgia, the Atlanta area, and I moved to South Carolina after college. So um, so I have experience in multiple states um, having babies. And um, I am a nuclear engineer, and um, like I said, we have four babies. I'm 36 years old, so that's a little bit about me. Awesome. So wherever you feel like you want to start, if it's with that first pregnancy and leading into that birth or whatever you think is going to be best. Okay. So um, actually, I will start with our first pregnancy, um, which was not our, our first birth. So we started back in 2010, we decided to start trying to have babies and um, we ended up getting pregnant. We were super happy and told our family. And then um, a few weeks later, we had a miscarriage. It was actually a, a missed miscarriage. Um, so I, I was bleeding a little and the, you know, they said that the baby was not viable but I never actually had the miscarriage. And um, the the OB wanted to schedule a DNC for um, the next Monday. And um, it was very just like cold and, and sterile the way they went about it. You know, they were, you know, sort of like, oh, we're sorry, this is happening. Here's the paperwork. We'll see you Monday. Bye. Um, it was, you know, a shock, like we were happy and uh, excited. And then this happened. And um, it didn't sit well with me. And so I was like, you know what? I just can't do the DNC. Um, and so I just didn't show up. And um, that was sort of my first uh, taste of the obstetric world. I never heard anything back from my OB. There was no like, oh, well, here are your options. You know, if you're not going to have the DNC, then this is what you can expect. Or, you know, if you experience more than this amount of bleeding, you should go to the ER. Like there was nothing. We had already scheduled a, a second opinion um, with a different OB. And um, the day before our appointment with her, I actually had the miscarriage and was bleeding a lot. We ended up going to the ER because we didn't even know like what was normal or what to expect. So we ended up actually meeting that second OB and um, she was so kind and so caring. And so, you know, that was you know, terrible and traumatic and having to to heal from that. But, you know, my body did know what to do. And I had the miscarriage. I never had the DNC. Um, and so all that worked out fine. But um, it really um, started me off not on a good foot with, um, with OBs and hospitals and things like that. So about five months after that, um, we got pregnant again. And, um, and this baby stuck. So um, we were really excited about that. We did uh, some um, childbirth uh, education. We actually did a Bradley class. 
uh, me and my husband, I had to uh, sort of drag my husband along to the Bradley class, but he reluctantly participated. And we learned a lot. Uh, we also watched The Business of Being Born during that time. And as soon as I watched that, I was like, well, I can't have my baby in a hospital. <laughs> like, that's not an option anymore. So, um, and that was sort of, you know, that, that went along with my uh, preconceived notions <laughs> about OBs and hospitals anyways. Um, and my, my mom's a chiropractor, so I sort of grew up kind of hippie and not too sure about the medical field anyway. So we decided to have a, a birth center birth. And the birth center was about an hour away from us. And so we went and met the midwives and they were great. And I loved it. They spend so much time with you. They really educate you. I knew a lot about birth for it being my first baby. And um, everything was great. And I got to 40 weeks and I had a great pregnancy. I loved being pregnant. Like I was never sick. It was, it was so great. And I got to 40 weeks and that came and went. And then I got to 41 weeks and that came and went. And um, after 41 weeks, my midwives had some like natural induction things they wanted me to try um, because mm -hmm. what I didn't realize was that the regulations in South Carolina prohibit them from attending my birth after 42 weeks. So there was a hard deadline at 42 weeks. They can no longer be my providers. I think they had mentioned it before, but they were like, don't worry about it. Like no one goes that long. It's, it's not a big deal. Like don't stress. Um, so I tried all these natural <laughs> induction techniques. I did castor oil twice. That was terrible. Um, I did, you know, all these homeopathic things. I did induction massage. Um, all the things that you're supposed to do, I did all of them. And um, nothing worked. <laughs> like, not a single contraction came from any of it. So 42 weeks came and went. And um, at that point, I was without a provider. <laughs> they have a hospital that they normally work with and would normally transfer me to, but it was an hour away. So I'm like, why am I even going to this hospital an hour away? So we were looking at hospitals at 42 weeks pregnant. You know, it's just quite an experience to walk into, you know, an L&D floor at a hospital and tell them you're 42 weeks. And they're like, what? Like you're here for induction right now, right? I'm like, no, I just want a tour, like, just looking around. <laughs> and um, we did that several times. And we're like, well, maybe we should just go to the hospital that, that's used to working with the midwives that we were with. So, um, so we still went to that hospital an hour away. And um, I had had a couple of biophysical profiles during this time too. And they were all perfect, perfect scores. Um, and I, I wasn't even that uncomfortable for being 42 weeks. Everyone else was freaking out though. My husband was freaking out. Our families were freaking out. The OBs were freaking out. It also, it sort of confused me because the midwives were like, well, you're 42 weeks now. So we have to recommend that you go get induced right now. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like you just told me all about how like, the body knows what to do. And like, you can trust the birth process. And we're just going to like throw all that out the window now that I'm 42 weeks. Like, I don't get it. So um, we continued waiting for spontaneous labor. I had a couple more biophysical profiles. Everything was fine. 
eventually we got to 43 weeks and I agreed to an induction. So we went to the hospital one evening and I was already four centimeters, which is pretty awesome. Um, thinking back on it, but not in labor at all. And um, they were like, well, we were going to do cervical ripening, but you're already four centimeters. So we're not going to do that now. And I was like, well, I'm not going to consent to anything else right now. So um, we just stayed in the hospital overnight, really just for monitoring. And um, it, I wish we hadn't done that. Like if, if I could go back and redo it, I would, I would have just gone home at that point and continued waiting. But we stayed in the hospital because again, everyone was freaking out. And so the next day, I'll never forget, they did grand rounds. Um, I guess this was a teaching hospital. So like 10 doctors came into my room and they were like, here's the deal. You can't just continue to stay here and not be in labor. We either have to start the induction or we would really recommend that you just get a C-section now because we think your baby is 10 pounds and we would just recommend a C-section now. And um, we thought about it for a while and I, uh, I was like, oh, well, I just ate some food. So we can't do a C-section now, can we? <laughs> and um, they were like, oh no, we have to like wait like eight more hours because you just ate a biscuit. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, darn. So I consented to the C-section and I say consent, you know, there's, there was so much pressure mm -hmm. and, and honestly manipulation. For example, they, they told me that um, at this point I had a three times higher chance for stillbirth at 43 weeks and they didn't want me to keep waiting because the chance of stillbirth was just going to get higher and higher. So they told me that. They also told me my baby was big, which I did think he probably was going to be big. I'm not a small person. And it didn't scare me. But um, yeah, I was just so worn down by that point with all the fear and having already been in the hospital. I didn't want to go through an induction and probably need an epidural. Like, I felt like I could push out my baby, but maybe not with an epidural and stuck in bed for God knows how long. And I was just tired of fighting. Like I was 43 weeks pregnant. Everyone's losing their minds. I was just tired of fighting. So I agreed to the C-section. And by the way, I even asked them, I was like, what are the risks with the C-section? And they were like, oh, well, there's like a few things, but like, it's all less than 1%. So don't worry about it. So super downplayed oh. compared to everything else yeah. that they're throwing at you for just not wanting to have a C-section and letting your body right. do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, wait a minute, like you, you're telling me I have a three times higher chance of stillbirth, but you're not telling me the absolute risk of that, which is still very, very low, mm -hmm. but yet you're going to downplay the risks of a C-section. So whatever. Anyways, we ultimately had the C-section. And um, it was all right. Like it was textbook C-section. There were no complications or anything. When baby was born, they took him over to the warmer and I couldn't see him. And they, you know, cleaned him up and wrapped him all up and brought him, just like held him next to my head um, so I could sort of like see him. But of course I couldn't touch him or anything. So I got to see him for like a minute. And then my husband took him off to the nursery for like bath and stuff. It was just very traditional textbook C-section. 
he was nine pounds, 15 and a half ounces. So Good just size. under 10 pounds. Yes, yes, he, he was big. And I figured he would be. I was gigantic. But again, his size didn't really scare me, but it scared them. They also obviously didn't tell me that ACOG doesn't recommend a C-section unless the baby's suspected to be over 11 pounds. So they conveniently left that fact out. But, um, you know, the postpartum period was really, really difficult. I was still just, just like reeling from, I felt very abandoned um, by the midwives. I felt like my husband didn't support me. Like I was mad at the medical system. Like I had, I mean, really birth trauma, you know, there was coercion and manipulation and there, there were just a lot of um, bad things that were very like routine. And it was a lot to recover from mentally and emotionally. And then on top of that, our baby was just really high needs, really difficult. Um, I was determined to breastfeed. And um, he unfortunately had a really severe tongue tie and lip tie that went completely undiagnosed until he was four years old. And um, we saw multiple lactation consultants, multiple pediatricians, and they were all like, it looks fine. Like, there's no problems here. Like, his latch is great. Um, you know, meanwhile, I'm like dying every time he latches on and making no milk. And he didn't gain an ounce for the first five weeks of his life, which that is significant. You know, usually they should be back to their birth weight, I guess, by like two weeks. He, he hadn't gained an ounce. Uh, since he left the hospital. So eventually we just started supplementing with formula and I still ended up breastfeeding for I think about 10 months, um, which is a really long time uh, considering how bad his tongue tie and lip tie were. But we we just supplemented with formula and he didn't sleep like at all ever. And I went back to work at six weeks postpartum and it just really sucked. <laughs> Like every part of it was really terrible. I think that that first year of his life was really the worst year of my life. It was so hard. My my husband and I almost got divorced during that time as well. It, it's just a lot to go through, you know, and we've talked so much since then and we've been in therapy and um, my husband actually is a psychologist now and he, um, he, helps people with birth trauma and he can speak to it from a dad's point of view and you know the dads are going through a lot too um it's very difficult for them to see their wife um on an or table and to to see you know just all the struggles and to see again the manipulation in the hospital like this was a, a medical system that he very much trusted and so that uh that trust that he had was taken away and it, it was really hard for both of us. So, you know, I can't say enough good things about going to therapy for mom's healing, but also for dad's healing and going through all of this too. And then for, for you as a couple, there's just so many issues that uh, having a first baby can really bring out really great having a, a third impartial expert help you work through all of that. So and I'm glad you brought up the dad's perspective too, just because, I mean, obviously we focus on mom and everything mom went through because that's significant. And obviously yeah. you're the one bearing the brunt of 
like the pregnancy and how like the birth and recovery and everything with that. But it is important to think like the dad or partner, whoever goes through that too. And it's, it's different and it's not meant to take away from what the mom is going through. But I think sometimes, I mean, this is just my personal opinion, I guess, like my husband is a helper. He wants to do Mm -hmm. something. And when he can't do something, that's when he struggles. So to see something happening to their wife, I I think that a lot of husbands would fall into that category where if they can't do something about it, they feel helpless. And that goes, I mean, in labor and birth and in new motherhood, because yeah, if you are breastfeeding, I mean, (laughs) I remember, I don't mean to laugh, but I remember like sitting up at night breastfeeding my son and looking over at my husband in a dead sleep and being so mad. And I'm like, this is so unreasonable of me because he can't breastfeed our baby, but I just want him to be awake because I'm awake. And that's just not uh, like that. That's not what worked for our relationship. Like he needed to be awake during the day as much as possible to take care of the baby so I could nap and different stuff like that. But I think it's important to remember that dynamic and yeah, to remember that your relationship is intermingled into all of this too. So to try to put focus on that, because that can fall to the wayside sometimes when all of your attention and focus is on this brand new little baby, but you, you have to keep that relationship strong for your baby too. Yeah. And I think it's difficult, even in the best of circumstances, Mm -hmm. we did not have the best of circumstances. It's very important. And the other thing is that, you know, at least even though our baby was very difficult, at least I had some (laughs) biological hormones that, that bonded me to this baby and that gave me some instincts on how to respond, but my husband didn't have that. So Mm -hmm. he was, you know, learning from scratch and and didn't have the help of the hormones. So yeah, it's, it's just something a lot of people forget about the dads and what they go through. So then how, how long after that did you decide to get pregnant with your second? Um, so we, we waited a little while. It was about two years, right before his second birthday, we started thinking about that we could try to have another one. And we were like immediately pregnant, <laughs> which is a common theme. We just think about it and it happens. So um, we're, we're lucky in that regard. But um, so yeah, he was about two years old and we got pregnant. And this time, I decided that I really wanted a home birth. The The birth center that we had agreed to the first time was sort of a compromise. My husband would have rather spent in the hospital. I would have rather spent at home. So we compromised on the birth center. Um, but this time the birth center was not an option because I had had a cesarean and the regulations didn't allow that. So I decided on a home birth, but um, those same regulations that won't let us have a home birth or have a, uh, a VBAC in a birth center also prohibit having a VBAC at home with a licensed midwife. So you can't do that in South Carolina um, if you've had a cesarean. So we live right on the border between South Carolina and Georgia. So I used a home birth midwife that's based in Georgia and we rented a furnished apartment for three weeks um, around my due date. And our plan was to have a, a home birth, but not actually in our home at this apartment. Because again, I just knew I didn't want to be in the hospital. Um, I wanted that like normal, undisturbed physiological birth. So how did your um, husband perceive that just coming from 
him wanting to be in the hospital the first time, was he a little bit more on board this time or was he still a little Mm -hmm. hesitant? No, he was still pretty hesitant, I would say. He did like the midwife and he had a lot of trust in the midwife, but it's still not really what he wanted to do. But he he tried to be supportive. So, yeah, he, he wasn't real excited about it. That's just interesting circumstances, too. Um, I mean, I've I've definitely heard of women crossing state lines or just looking into those alternative scenarios in order to be able to have their home births. So I, I'm glad that you shared that, too, just renting an apartment for three weeks and just I'm assuming you guys moved moved everything over and just kind of hung out for yeah. those weeks leading up to labor. Yeah, we um, we like sort of. Um, stocked the apartment with uh, food and um, snacks and uh, my husband took his xbox so you know that made him a little (laughs) comfortable (laughs) and uh, we you know set up the birth pool over there and um, we we didn't go and stay there really until we thought I was in early labor Um, because it was like 30 minutes away so that's not too uh, bad I was envisioning like a multiple hour drive but that's right you said you were kind of right on the border there yeah yeah it wasn't that far so um again 40 weeks um came and went and I had had no problems in my pregnancy again I have very easy pregnancies yeah 40 weeks came and went 41 weeks came and went (laughs) and then I guess right at 41 weeks I I thought that I was in early labor. So we went over <laughs> to the furnished department and we hung out there and had like a day of, it, it probably really was more prodromal labor. Contractions were pretty spaced out. There wasn't really a regular pattern to it. So midwife told me to take some Benadryl and get some sleep. So I, I slept overnight. And, um, and then the next day we we're just sort of hanging out and I felt a pop. And I was like, I bet that's my water that just broke. And so um, I went to the bathroom and there was a lot of blood and I knew that something was wrong. There there wasn't supposed to be that much blood. And um, so we called the midwife, she came over immediately and I, I wasn't bleeding constantly. I was just gushing blood with each contraction and the baby was doing fine. And so we, we decided to just like hang out for a little bit to see what was going to happen. Again, I don't remember how, um, maybe three or four centimeters dilated at that point, but then the baby started having some D cells. So the midwife really recommended that we go to the hospital at that point. And, um, it was not an emergency, but it wasn't getting better. So we didn't want it to become an emergency. And we drove ourselves to the hospital. Um, it was maybe 10 minutes away. And um, when we got to the hospital, I really expected them to be like, oh, you've already had a cesarean and you're gushing blood with every contraction. Okay, let's go have a C-section now. Um, that's what I expected to happen, but that's not what happened. <laughs> They just like checked me in and took their time. And like, I told them, I was like, no, I'm, I'm gushing blood with every contraction. They're like, yeah, don't worry about it. Like baby looks fine. The, the doctor never checked me, never looked at my bleeding. 
And I was just very confused by all of this. It was just not good care at all. And fortunately, the midwife stayed with us the whole time. And the midwife was really watching the monitors. um, And baby's heart rate kept getting worse and worse. And um, they, they just didn't seem to care at all. And so eventually, after discussing it with my midwife, my home birth midwife there in the hospital, I was like, we, we should just have the C-section now. So I told them, I told the OB and the nurse, I want a C-section now. And so they, they prepped me and it it was just the on-call OB. So they actually called my OB to come in to do the C-section. And we had, we had, um, had care with the OB the whole time. And we had actually told the OB that we were planning a home birth and she was okay with it. She wasn't excited about that, but she agreed to continue providing care uh, for me and to be my backup in case I needed to come to the hospital. So I had had lots of appointments with her and we had even discussed a gentle cesarean birth plan in case I needed a cesarean. So we had already talked about all the things that were really important to me. So she came in, this was like 2.30 in the morning. She came in and she did the cesarean and it was amazing. <laughs> it was such a fantastic birth. They, they took the baby out and they took him over to the warmer just for a minute. And then they brought him over to me um, and we had skin to skin in the OR. And um, that was just like the best moment of my life. It was, it was so amazing to have that immediate skin to skin. And um, unfortunately with the midwife, she's, she still stayed at the hospital with us for a long time. And she was so instrumental in doing, you know, making us do skin to skin because of course they give you baby all like wrapped up. And she's like, no, no, unswaddle the baby, put the baby on your skin. And she helped us so much with breastfeeding and she made my husband do skin to skin also. And it was just, it was such an amazing birth. <laughs> um, like on paper, it should have been horrible, right? Like we had to go to the hospital. We, we ended up, it was a, a partial placental abruption, which is what was the cause of the bleeding. And um, I knew from the moment it happened that, that that's what it was. And I told them that and they were like, no, no. And then after the C-section, they were like, oh, did you know you had a partial placental abruption? And I'm like, yeah, that's what I've been telling you this whole time. Yeah, and yeah. they had been listening at some point, yeah, then exactly. they would have heard that. Yep. So um, anyways, but it was, it should have been a horrible birth, but it actually was really, really, really good. Um, and it, so it was really good because, because there, there was no coercion. There was no manipulation. I made the decisions at every point. Um, I was in charge of what was happening and I chose a really, really good birth team. You know, I chose someone who would support me in my preferred setting, which was at home. And I also chose an amazing OB who would support me and who would do the gentle cesarean. So, you know, because we did all that preparation, it ended up being an amazing birth, even though it didn't go at all like I wanted it to, but it was still really, really good. Was there anything else that was included in that gentle cesarean birth plan that might be 
beneficial for other people to hear if they encounter those same circumstances? I mean, skin to skin in the OR is huge. So I know that that's, that's a big one. We'll come back to that question. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. The next story. (laughs) Okay. So no, that, that pretty much was it. Um, It was just the skin to skin in the OR with that baby. Um, And then for his, the the postpartum period was a lot better. Um, I, you know, had developed um, some skills for, for breastfeeding. I knew more of what to do, although I still at that point didn't know anything about tongue tie and lip tie, which this baby also had, but it wasn't as terrible. And um, we ended up breastfeeding for 18 months with him, um, which was a long time. It it was a, a much better experience. And the postpartum time was a lot better. This baby slept more, um, probably because his tummy was getting a little fuller um, than the first baby. So it it was a lot better. And again, my husband and I had been through therapy. We learned better how to communicate. We had really processed through a lot of things that had happened with the first birth um, so that we didn't repeat those same mistakes this time. So it was overall a much, much better experience than the first one. I'm so glad that you shared that because kind of how you were saying, like on paper, it doesn't seem like that would be a good birth or something that you would want to have. And I think that's a fear of a lot of women who are wanting to have a VBAC is that they'll end up having a repeat cesarean. And so I think that that speaks volumes to a repeat cesarean is not the worst thing that could happen if you have that opportunity to be an active part of your care team and make those decisions for yourself. Because I, just from what I hear, that is usually where you see trauma manifest is when you feel Mm -hmm. like things are happening to you or like you don't get to have a say or a decision or an active role in, in your care. So being able to play that active role and and make those choices for yourself and have a care team that listens to you and respects those decisions can make a big difference in that respect. Yes, absolutely. It makes a huge difference. So then how long after your second, did you have your third? I think he was probably 15 months. Yeah. Cause there was some overlap. I was still breastfeeding while I was pregnant and baby number two and baby number three are two years and one month apart. So yeah, I think it was about 15 months. So for this baby, you know, we'd had, we, we had a, attempted a birth center with the first, we had attempted a home birth with the second. And there were no OBs in our area that were super supportive of a VBAC after two C-sections. So I knew that I wanted to try for a VBAC. And Um, I knew that my plans hadn't been working out very well. So I agreed to a hospital birth for the third baby, but I wanted a super supportive doctor. And the closest one was three hours away uh, in Atlanta. And so my husband agreed with that. And I, I continued seeing my midwife that I'd used for the second birth. She did like half my prenatal visits and I drove three hours each way for my other half of my prenatal visits. So the the plan was to have a VBAC in the hospital. It would be a VBAC after two C-sections. And 
Oh, the other thing that I didn't mention with my second birth was I did hypnobabies. That was, I, I think that really contributed to the good birth. Not that I really got to use those skills um, that I learned during the class, but during the the class part, there's lots of practice and you really, they really focus on connecting with your baby. And I really feel like I, I had a very strong bond with my baby because we had done those classes. So I also think that contributed to the really good birth. But um, anyway, so talking about the third birth now. Yeah, we're driving to Atlanta um, for visits. And um, this doctor was a little controversial in that he did a lot of the births that no one else will do. So he would do VBACs after three, four, five C-sections. He did breech births. He did um, vaginal twin births. Basically all the births that all the other OBs are too scared to do, he would do it. And um, he believed very much in the mother making the decisions. Because of that, he had a little trouble keeping privileges at hospitals. And um, when I was probably seven months pregnant, he got his privileges revoked at the hospital where he was. And um, there was a lot of drama and there were protests and the media got involved and it was very stressful going through all of that, you know, thinking that, you know, I've invested all this time and money going uh, three hours away for this birth. And like, my doctor doesn't even have privileges anymore. And it, it was a stressful time. But um, he did get his privileges back before my due date. So things were sort of okay between him and the hospital. So I thought. So that's a little bit of background about that situation. And um, when I was 40 weeks and five days, so this was my earliest baby, um, still five days after my due date, but 40 weeks, five days uh, in the morning, I got up and I, I was in labor. And apparently when I go into labor, it is like immediate, like th there were no like, contractions spread out that slowly get closer together. No, it was three minutes apart. The contraction started and, um, and we had a three hour drive. So my midwife had agreed to be a monitrice and my doula at the hospital. So we stopped by my midwife's house and she checked me and I was, I don't know, only two or three centimeters, but she could tell by looking at me that I was definitely in labor. And my contractions were close. So she was like, you need to go now. So we drove and I guess a little bit of foreshadowing the drive, like most people would think driving three hours in labor with contractions, three minutes apart would be horrible, but it was really the best part of the birth. <laughs> <laughs> That'll sort of tell you how terrible the birth was, but also it'll tell you sort of how good the hypno babies was from the previous birth because I even though I didn't take that class again I didn't practice any of it it was all like still in my brain and I was able to relax and just like focus and just like go into my zone in the car and the car ride it was so like calm there was no one again there was no one coercing me no one manipulating me like I was just 
I just got to be. And that's what I wanted <laughs> from, you know, the very beginning of my first birth. That was all I ever wanted <laughs> was to just be and just experience that in my own space. And so, so the car ride was actually really good. So we drove to Atlanta and um, I had um, planned to decline basically everything during labor. And I had filled out the hospital's birth plan and like marked all my preferences. And I had on there that I didn't want an IV and I did not want continuous monitoring. And the hospital had agreed to it. They had signed off on it. And they knew this was a VBAC after two C-sections, but they agreed to it. So we got there. And of course they wanted to give me an IV and continuous monitoring. And I was like, nope, not doing that. And um, they seemed kind of confused, but I was like, well, too bad, I'm not doing it. So um, we like got checked into the room and we had the lights down and it was, it was really great. Like I was moving around, having contractions, you know, not hooked up to anything. It was really nice. And um, I was laboring for a while. And I remember it was probably 5.30 in the evening. I got a call from my OB and he called me and he said, I've been talking with hospital administration and anesthesiology and you have to get an IV. And I was like, I don't want an IV. So what, what happens if I don't, I refuse. He was like, well, if you don't agree to an IV, then you are going to jeopardize every other future VBAC at this hospital. Wow. Talk about pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and again, I, I knew about my OB and all of his issues with this hospital. And um, I knew that he actually, he was probably right, but I still refused at, at that point. But it was so upsetting and so disturbing that my labor just stopped. Like, no more labor. I, I think it's, it's very clear to me that my body knew that, that I was not safe there. I did not feel safe. Mm-hmm. And my labor stopped. So now I have a stalled labor and a sort of um, angry hospital staff. They're not happy with me and an OB who I thought was going to support me and has now just like thrown me under the bus and is not going to support me. So um, we hung out and we tried to do some different things. Eventually, um, after several hours of like no contractions, I agreed to an amniotomy um, and that's where they break your water because I, I wanted to get this moving um, so that it could be over. And, um, and I also knew that an amniotomy comes with risks. And I wanted the IV before I had the amniotomy because there's a risk of cord prolapse and, you know, things can go bad from there. So I wanted the IV in place. So I agreed to the IV at that point and I let them break my water and nothing happened. I, I still didn't have any contractions and um, it was getting late at that point. So I asked for an epidural so that I could rest. I was still having contractions, I don't know, maybe like every 10 minutes. And so they came and gave me an epidural and it didn't really work. Like I was able to relax for a few minutes, but 
I was still feeling everything. And we called them back in and they basically just didn't believe me. They were like, no, it's working. You just like don't know how it's supposed to feel. So I kept telling them like, it's not working, but yet they wouldn't let me get out of bed because they thought I had a working epidural. And so here I am now stuck on my back in bed, completely miserable, just again, wanting it all to be over. And eventually that that's what I told them. <laughs> I had a, a sort of come to Jesus moment with the midwife that was attending me at that time. And I told them like, I'm, I'm tired of being a pawn in your like power struggle that you have going on with the hospital. And I want this to be over. So we're going to go do a C-section now. And again, I had talked with the OB about doing a gentle cesarean. And that's another thing, this OB, you know, in addition to doing all the births no one else wants to do, he does a really, really good uh, gentle cesarean. So his default, you know, you don't even really have to ask for these things. This is just what he does. He, he does immediate skin to skin. Um, he does delayed cord clamping. He lowers the drape when the baby is born. Um, he has the lights dim in the OR um, and he does vaginal seating. So I knew that all of that was standard and I knew that my body wasn't going to labor anymore under these circumstances. So I was like, Let, we just need to do this C-section so this can be over. But I, I was like, hey, but don't forget, I have this epidural, but it's not placed right. It's not working. And they were like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll just dose it real good when we get in there. Like, no big deal. So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so we went in to the OR and um, I, I guess maybe they tried dosing it. Um, and they, they were about to cut open, but they always at least are supposed to do like a pinch test to make sure that you're actually numb before they start cutting. And I felt everything. And so he would like pinch me in a different place. And I'm like, yeah, I feel that. He was like, what does it feel like? I'm like, it feels like you're pinching my right upper thigh two inches <laughs> down from my pelvic bone. Like, like, yes, I can feel this. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's unbelievable how much they do not listen to women. So um, eventually I convinced them that the epidural really didn't work. And so they like undid everything and sat me back up. And um, the anesthesiologist worked for about an hour trying to place an epidural. And he would try an epidural and then he would try a spinal and then he would try an epidural and then he would try a spinal. And um, I don't know how many times um, he tried, but I have a, a picture of my back afterwards and you can count 25 different puncture marks in my back. Oh my gosh. And some of those are the like Novocaine that they do first, but um, it was a lot. And, you know, I'm alone at this point. They don't let um, your partner come in mm -hmm. until like they're cutting you open. So I'm alone um, during this whole ordeal. And um, eventually the anesthesiologist was like, well, it's not going to work. So my OB came over and he's like, the anesthesia is, is not going to work with an epidural or a spinal. So we're going to have to put you under general anesthesia. And so I told him, no, I, I do not consent to general anesthesia. And my OB told me that if I didn't 
consent to general anesthesia, um, he could not be my OB anymore and I would have to go home. What? Um, yeah. They were going to send you home if you didn't consent? That's, That's what he said. Yes. Oh my gosh. And so, like, I knew that that couldn't really be true. Happen. Yeah. At this point, I was, I was like eight centimeters and my water had been broken. But, but it, like, my brain in that moment, like, couldn't, like, figure all that out. Well, right. You're so, in a different state of mind. You're not thinking, oh, yeah. like, okay, realistically, are they going to send me home? You're just like, yeah, no. okay, I, I have to do this then. What, yeah. What's, what, what are my choices? So my choices at that moment were I can either consent to general anesthesia or I can go home. And those are my choices. So I was like, I, I cannot wrap my brain around being eight centimeters in my VBAC attempt with no medical problems whatsoever. And now having a, a C-section under general anesthesia and missing my son's birth altogether for no medical reason. So I'm not going to do that. So I guess we're going to go home now. <laughs> and uh, I was about to tell them like, well, I'm going home. And um, the anesthesiologist, you know, once I kept saying, I do not consent. And the anesthesiologist, I think, really understood that I was not going to consent to general anesthesia. So he was like, well, I guess I can try an epidural one more time. And so he tried it and it worked. So from there, they let my husband in and we had a really great gentle cesarean. And we had all of those things. We had the delayed cord clamping, the immediate skin to skin, like with him all gooey and gross. And, um, <laughs> and I, I love it. That's like the best thing. That's what I always wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and even in my second birth, they had to clean them up a little bit before we did skin to skin. So this was the first baby that had ever seen gooey and gross. And I loved that. And they did the vaginal seating and um, the lights were dim. But, you know, I would say like on paper, that probably should have been a pretty good birth because of all the great general cesarean things they did. But I really think it, it was the most traumatic because of the level of, of coercion and manipulation and unethical behavior and um, just, just so many things wrong with how I was treated and not um, listening to you when you were speaking like to tell them this isn't working this isn't working over and over and over again and then they just right. ignore you oh yeah. I'm so sorry yeah it was um it, it was really tough and like my husband was freaking out the whole time because no one was telling him what was happening you know and this was the third time he's been through this he knows that you know, it's like maybe five minutes and then they let you in and it had been over an hour and they weren't letting him in and they had, no one was telling him what was happening. So yeah, it, it was just, uh, it was really tough for both of us. Um, and also I didn't mention my second baby. Um, he was also nine pounds, 15 ounces. So the first two weighed the same. And then this baby was nine pounds, eight ounces. So, um, so I just, you know, make pretty good size babies and um, very healthy. And this one, um, again, breastfeeding worked a little better again this time. Um, I had um, a lot of experience and uh, resources and skills. So, so yeah, that, that was the third birth and, and it was kind of terrible. 
How did that transition into just that postpartum period then? Because I know like earlier you were just speaking to some of those emotions and difficulties Mm -hmm. after your first birth. Did you have some of those similarities with this third birth or was it a little bit different? Yeah, there were a lot of, of the same feelings, but we knew how to work through them and process them, um, especially me and my husband together. So it was not, it was not debilitating like it was the first time um, because I had built, you know, more of a support network. And um, again, we had those skills of learning how to communicate and learning how to process through things. So it could have been just as bad, but um, because of all the work that we had done all the emotional work, it was not um, as bad as it was the first time. Was this the same midwife throughout all of your birth? experience no. that was with you? No. Okay. No. Um, it was the same midwife for the second and third birth. Okay. And, um, and, and she was really great. And one thing, another thing that I'll definitely give her credit for making this third birth, not as bad as it could have been is that, um, she came over and we like debriefed about everything that happened because it's such an incredible story. Like, if someone else was telling me the story, I would be like, that didn't really happen. <laughs> like, that's too crazy. That can't be true. Like if it didn't happen to me, like, I don't know if I would have believed it. Um, and so uh, debriefing with her and, you know, all the things that she saw going on from her perspective, um, that was really helpful being able to process through all of that with a birth worker that was there and that I knew was like, on my side, so to speak. So that that really helped also. That's awesome. I'm glad that you were able to have her for that support. Yes. I mean, throughout the process of labor and birth, but then, yeah, to be able to just lay it all out and have someone who has a different perspective but was there and can give you yeah. that information and process through everything with you and who understands because mm-hmm. she, I mean, if this is what she does I mean she's around birth and she's seen birth and can understand all the different dynamics that play into everything that goes on yes yeah exactly and she um she herself actually has eight children and has had all kinds of births um she's had vaginal births and c-sections and v-backs and lots of change plans so like she she knew very much all the emotions that were wrapped up in all of that so um it was very very helpful to have her um, help us process through all that also. And I'll say too, just on that note of her having those different birth experiences, it's definitely a different kind of support when it's from someone Mm -hmm. who knows firsthand what you experienced, even if the situations are a little bit different or certain things are different, but just someone who's been through a similar thing I, yeah. I think there's just a little bit more empathy and understanding there versus someone who maybe hasn't been through that. Even if they've, I mean, there's great trainings out there for like processing mm-hmm. birth trauma and like as a birth worker, how do you support different types of moms and different things like that? But it's just different when you have that personal experience with it, in my opinion. At yeah. Least. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, then baby number four. (laughs) Yeah, finally, we made it to baby number four. So with this birth, 
again, the, the interval between them um, from birth to birth, it's two years and four months. So yeah, this baby was like, I don't know, a year and a half or something when, when we got pregnant again. And um, I knew at this point that I was done with the hospital system. Um, I mean, I was I was done with baby number one, but now after this third birth, I was extra done. So we decided to try for a home birth again. And um, again, in South Carolina, a licensed midwife cannot attend a home birth after one cesarean, much less three cesareans now that I've had. So I knew I could not have a licensed midwife, but I, uh, I'm an ICANN leader and I started ICANN chapter um, in the Augusta, Georgia area where we were. And um, I knew an ICANN leader in South Carolina who had attempted a home birth after three cesareans with a midwife. And so um, I got in contact with her and uh, she was able to hook me up with a midwife that she chooses to remain unlicensed. And um, a lot of times you'll hear that home birth after cesarean is illegal um, in a state like South Carolina that licenses midwives. Um, and that's not technically true. Um, there is no legal risk at all to the birthing parents. Um, like you're not gonna get arrested for having a home birth after cesarean in any state. But if a licensed midwife is caught attending a home birth after cesarean, in a state like South Carolina, she would lose her license um, and she would lose her livelihood. So um, there's not very many licensed midwives that will risk that. So, but there are a few midwives that remain unlicensed. However, there's still some legal risk for them um, if they're caught attending any home birth as a midwife, they can be prosecuted for practicing medicine without a license because you have to be licensed in South Carolina to be a midwife. So it's sort of like a, a black market for midwives. And I, I think this sort of black market exists in most states um, that license midwives, but I, I could really only speak to South Carolina. So I got in contact with this midwife and she agreed to talk to me. And so we met and um, she was just fantastic. Like she, she had a ton of experience, a lot of education. We talked about all sorts of things. Um, we, I, I had ended up having, you know, lots of prenatal visits with her and, um, we talked about emergency situations and what, what things she brings to the home birth, what medications she has, what equipment she has, things like that. And, so, so this time we planned a home birth in our home, our actual house uh, in South Carolina. And she had, she had every confidence in me. She was like, yeah, there's, there's no reason why there's a problem here. Like your, your body knows what to do. And it was actually doing it very well in your third birth until, you know, all the drama happened. So yeah, there's, there's no problems here. And during this whole time, I was also seeing an OB. And this OB, when she's a very good OB, but when I first met her, you know, she was like, so you've had three C-sections, so you can't have a V-back. So we're just going to have a fourth cesarean. And she just went on with that. And I was like, yeah, okay. 
And I said, I, I told her I'm okay having a fourth cesarean as long as we don't schedule it. So are you okay with me just waiting until I go into labor? And then when I go into labor, I'll come in and we'll have the cesarean. And she was like, yeah, okay, that's fine with me. Meanwhile, the whole time I was planning a home birth. And so my plan was that if everything worked out with a home birth, then I would just, you know, never see her again, (laughs) never see the OB ever again. But if something happened in the home birth and I needed to go in and have a cesarean, then like, it would look like that was the plan the whole time from her perspective. So, so that was my plan. Um, I never told her that we were planning a home birth. Um, I never told her that I even wanted to be back uh, after three C-sections. So I, I got OB care from her and I got uh, midwifery care from the midwife that was going to do our home birth. So again, we had a great pregnancy. Uh, everything was fine. And then um, again, 40 weeks came and went. Um, 41 weeks came and went. And at 41 weeks, I started getting really itchy. And this can be a sign of cholestasis, which um, is a troubling liver problem um, that can be risky uh, for mom and baby. Um, And so we did the blood work for that, but everything was okay. So what we think I had PUPS, which I don't even remember what all PUPS stands for, but P-U-P-P-S, or sometimes you'll see it P-U-P-P-P-S. Again, I don't know what the acronym is, but um, it makes you super itchy. And so I was just miserable after 41 weeks. And then 42 weeks came and went. And I I was starting to wonder if I would ever go into labor, Uh, even though I went into spontaneous labor with my last one. But still, I was like, well, maybe my body doesn't know what to do. But I just kept waiting and waiting. And the morning of 42 weeks and three days, I felt a little off. And um, I told my midwife, like, today might be the day. And um, that was probably eight o'clock in the morning by like 8.30, I called her back and I was like, no, this is happening. It's today. <laughs> Today's the day. And um, she was like two and a half hours away. So she went ahead and headed our way. And my doula came over and um, it was, it was the most amazing experience to labor in my house. You know, there was no rushing around, packing a bag or um, no getting in the car we had a nanny at that time. And so she came and took the other kids and took them over to her house. And so for a while, it was just me and my husband in our house. I was so comfortable and I was having very regular contractions and it it was amazing. And and the doula came over and did her doula thing. And, uh, the midwives got there and we set up the birth tub and, um, I remember once they had the birth tub set up, I got in it and it is the most incredible feeling I've ever experienced. <laughs> it felt so good to be in that birth tub. It was so warm and relaxing. It was, oh, it was amazing. Um, I told my husband that I wanted that birth tub set up in our living room like forever <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the time because <clears throat> it was so great. And I was just in the zone. Um, You know, a lot of times people talk about like, oh, well, 
you know, once your contractions get where like you can't talk through them, like then you're really in active labor. But for me, like from the very first contraction, like I, I can't talk through them. Uh, I'm just immediately in the zone. And it was, it was just a fantastic experience laboring in my own house, um, in that pool, in my living room. And um, I even remember my doula asking me at one point, like what my pain level was. And I was just really confused by her question. Like, I didn't know how to answer it. Like, like, I don't know, like, purple, like, what do you want from me? <laughs> like, my brain couldn't even comprehend pain at that point. Like, I would not say that I was ever in pain um, during that labor and birth. And again, I probably credit a lot of that to the hypno babies that I did two births previous, but that all that information was still in my head. And um, again, just allowed me to get really deeply relaxed. And it's really, it's easy when you're in your own house and, you know, there's no strangers asking you questions and it was great. So I labored for probably from eight o'clock in the morning till... I don't even know, maybe five o'clock at night. And eventually I was just sort of getting like agitated and like, I'm kind of like done with this. Like it's not painful, but this isn't fun anymore. And I don't really want to do this for like an untold number of hours. And, um, and I told my midwife and my doula, I was like, I'm, I don't know how much more of this I have in me. And they were like, okay, well, let's get out of the tub and go lay down and rest for a little bit. And um, my doula set me up with the peanut ball in my bed and I snoozed for off and on maybe like an hour and turned over and napped a little more. And then I got up and contractions picked back up after that. And I started making noises that, that I did not recognize myself being capable of making these noises. And my midwife knew when I made that one particular noise, like she knew it was time. Um, and so she had me move to the birth stool and um, I was, I'd started bleeding a little bit and I wasn't really concerned and my midwife wasn't acting concerned. Um, but I later found out that she was a little concerned about that. And so um, my body just started pushing and I, definitely experienced the the fetal ejection reflex. You know, it's not like contractions were controllable before, but this was different. These were absolutely not controllable. Um, my body was just pushing and I had no control at all. It was very intense. Um, again, I wouldn't say it was painful or, or scary, but it was intense. And um, my midwife encouraged me to start pushing with the contractions because um, she was concerned about the blood. I think maybe I pushed for like an hour and a half. I have no idea about the time. <laughs> and then after pushing for a little bit, my baby was born in our living room. And it, it was so amazing. Like I really, I was still in disbelief that I was actually going to have this feedback and this home birth. Um, I, I was in disbelief until... I actually started pushing. <laughs> and once I started pushing, I was like, oh my God, this might actually happen. Like, I'm, this, this may work out. 
And, um, you know, I'd, I'd been so disappointed all the previous times I had tried, but it did work out and she was perfect. And um, I did end up having a postpartum hemorrhage and I, I lost quite a bit of blood. And fortunately, the midwife was prepared for that. And um, she gave me a shot of Pitocin in my thigh to help stop the bleeding. And she gave me um, a dose or two of Cytotec. Um, under my tongue. And that was, that stopped the bleeding. They think that they estimated I lost about 1500 cc's, 1.5 liters, which is a, a lot and definitely qualifies as a postpartum hemorrhage. And so, you know, the midwife with, she, she was awesome the whole time. And so she, you know, presented my options to me. She was like, you can go to the hospital and get a blood transfusion. Um, they would definitely recommend a blood transfusion if you were in the hospital and lost this much blood. So we can go with you to the hospital or you can stay here and see how you feel. And so I was, um, I was bound and determined to not step foot in that hospital. So I was like, am I going to die if I don't go to get the blood transfusion they were like no probably not it'll, it'll just be really slow recovery you'll be super weak for a long time I was like okay like I'll take that I'll just be weak and um, I refused to go in for the blood transfusion and um and my recovery was very slow I was very very weak after losing that much blood um my husband had to help me just walk to the bathroom I could barely you know, lift myself. And so that it was a rough recovery, but I was on so much of a high from that birth that I, I didn't even care. <laughs> like I, it, it sort of forced me to sit on the couch and just nurse my baby for like a month. <laughs> and that's, that's basically all I did for a month. It, which is kind of what you should be doing anyway. I was just going to say that sounds exactly like where you should be and what you yeah. should be doing after you give birth. Yeah. So it just forced me to do that. And it was amazing. It was an awesome time of, of bonding uh, with her. And again, um, so also, but at this point, we had really learned a lot about tongue tie and lip tie, which she also had. And we went and got fixed when she was six days old. So breastfeeding went a lot better. And again, like she, she turns two in a couple months and like, I'm still on the birth high from it. Like, it's just such an incredible, empowering experience. And like, you know, with every birth, I learned more and more about birth. I learned more and more about what my rights are. I learned more and more about informed consent. And I learned about, you know, these power hierarchies. Um, within the medical system. And, and finally, with this fourth birth, I really learned that I don't need anyone's permission to birth my baby how I want to. And, you know, from the OB who immediately said, well, you can't have a VBAC. And um, actually, I did go see her afterwards postpartum, and I wrote her this long letter. <laughs> and, um, you know, I told her, I was like, so you said that I can't have a VBAC, but that obviously was not true. And I'm sure what you meant to say was that you do not support me having a VBAC. And um, 
we we had a long good conversation after that but um you know i just had had everything stacked up against me the laws in my state the the three cesareans i was over 42 weeks i had gained a ton of weight um i weighed over 300 pounds when i had this um my fourth baby i had gained a, a lot of weight i was also technically advanced maternal age a quick story on that. So I thought advanced maternal age started when you're 35 years old. No, no. It starts at 34 years and 10 months. And so I was 34 years and 11 months when I had this baby. So I was technically advanced maternal age. I was not happy about that. <laughs> so yeah, I just had so much stacked against me and I did it anyways. And it, it just shows you what the right support will do and the right education and believing, really believing in the rights that you have to birth your baby where you want and how you want and with whom and where. So, um, so yeah, it's really been a long, <laughs> uh, complicated journey uh, to get to that point. But um, man, it's such an amazing place to be, like truly understanding the rights and the power that I have. It's just, it's incredible. It's, it's changed my life. That is amazing. And right, how can something like that not change every aspect of yeah. your life? That feeling of empowerment and just having that power over your own choices and your life and just the whole, like hearing this whole journey from beginning to end is so incredible and so inspiring. And just thank you for sharing all of that with us and being willing to share your story because I know that that's going to inspire somebody. I'm sure it already has. I know you're very <laughs> active in some different Facebook groups and like you yeah. said, um, the I can chapter and all of that. I mean, these are yeah. the types of stories that women need to hear. That's incredible. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk. And um, one other thing I wanted to mention was you know, in the wake of this amazing home birth, um, I decided to start um, a, a sort of a blog website. Um, it's called Smart Birth and the website smartbirth.org. And what I do is, you know, at the beginning, I mentioned I'm a nuclear engineer and um, actually in my job title, I have the word safety um, in my job title. And so I've, you know, built a whole career on understanding risk and safety. And I see so much um, crossover really in the, the nuclear industry and in childbirth with people not understanding risk and not understanding safety and what that means and keeping risk in perspective. So now that's really a, a big passion of mine is helping women understand statistics and risk um, and helping them, guiding them in, in the decisions that they make with keeping risk in a proper perspective. Um, so that's what I do uh, at my website now. Um, I have several articles talking about risk and statistics and safety, um, specifically in childbirth. So I, I hope that helps people a lot also. Um, yeah. I risk is really important. That's awesome. I will definitely put a link to that in the notes for the episode so that people can access that if they want to. And awesome. I, I mean, I'm going to check it out myself. That sounds awesome to have just like a one stop shop to actually look at the statistics because yeah. you, I, 
I'm just laughing because sometimes when you hear like, oh, you have twice as much of a chance of having this happen if you're a VBAC or I mean, whatever it is, I'm just throwing random things out there. But if you look at the statistics, it might be like from a 0.4% to a 0.8% or something like that. And that happens a lot. You hear like, oh, well, you have twice as many or you have this risk or you're twice as likely to have this happen or whatever it might be. But if you look at the overall risk, it's not that much different if you're a VBAC versus just a first time mom or not having had a prior cesarean or whatever Mm -hmm. the circumstances might be. So I think that that is important for women to have access to look at that information and those statistics themselves and decide for themselves what risks they're comfortable with and which ones they might not be. And that's going to look a little bit different for everyone. So you can't have this one size fits all recommendation from a provider. And unfortunately, that is often what happens is one provider is very against VBAC and they don't do VBACs no matter what the circumstances are, or they don't do this or they don't do that. But if you look at the opinions that vary from provider to provider, you kind of start to question, well, why does my provider get to decide what risks I get to take instead of looking at that ourselves and deciding for ourselves what we're comfortable with and then finding a provider that respects us in making our own decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And it really, the the whole obstetric world needs to change. And I think there are some good changes coming um, through ACOG. The ACOG practice bulletins are actually pretty good, but a lot of doctors don't follow that. And women have the power to make these changes. And that's, that's the only way it's going to change is with women educating themselves and learning their rights and standing up for themselves. Um, and so, yeah, now it's my goal to, to help other women do that because we are awesome. And we're very powerful as women and as mothers, and we get to make the decisions for ourselves and our babies and our families. No one yeah. else should be able to make those decisions for us. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for sharing all of your stories and and doing the work that you do. That's incredible. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Home Birth After Cesarean podcast. Make sure to subscribe, leave a rating, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you're interested in sharing your home birth after cesarean story, send us an email at hbacpodcast.com at gmail.com. See you next week.